And the reason I'm spending so much time on this subject is because my pastoral ministry has convinced me that this is a huge problem. It's a, it's a huge problem in the sense that almost everyone has had something serious done to them that they need to forgive. And most of us have trouble doing that. And when we don't forgive, it creates all sorts of emotional and spiritual problems in our own lives. I think one of the big reasons why we're reluctant to forgive is because we confuse it with other things. And we don't want to do those things, so we tend not to forgive either. But that's why I've tried to make some distinctions for us over the last several weeks. We've clarified, for example, that forgiveness is not the same as forgetting. You don't have to be able to forget it in order to forgive. Forgiveness is not the same as uh, wanting to release them from the consequences of their actions. Forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation. That's always the goal. We'd love to be reconciled with people who have hurt us, but it can't always happen. Uh, forgiveness depends on me. Reconciliation depends on us. So if they're not forthcoming with their part of it, I can still forgive. We just can't yet be reconciled. Neither is our forgiveness dependent on their apology or their repentance. Some folks are never going to say they're sorry. And we can and must forgive them anyway. We do that unilaterally. Forgiveness is not a feeling. It's a choice. It's a decision that we make to choose to forgive whether we feel forgiving towards that individual or not. And we trust the emotions will come along later. And forgiveness is not a one-time event. It's a process. And sometimes it takes a very long time to work that all the way through our souls. So my hope is that making some of these distinctions will make it a little easier for us to actually let go of those things that have hurt us. But still, it's a hard thing. And I'm convinced it's one of the hardest things God ever asks us to do. This morning, I want to begin looking at some of the reasons why we should do this. Um, why? The first one is one we've seen before, and I'm not going to dwell on it. We are morally obligated to forgive because we have been forgiven. The parable of the unmerciful servant who was forgiven such a huge debt. Uh, Should you not have had mercy on the one who owed you such a little, the king says to him. Indeed, we should. That's our responsibility. That's our duty. The second reason why we should forgive, and the one I want to look at today, is because it's good for us. It's good for us. Uh, I'm convinced no one ever does anything that they think is bad for them. We only do things that we think ultimately are good for us, even if it's cut down trees in our front yard. I think in the end, that will be good for me. So I'm willing to do it. Um, so here's why uh, forgiving others who have hurt us, and, and I'm not trying in any way to minimize the hurt okay, or their offense, but what do we do with it after that? I want to appeal to your self-interest. Uh, one thing is that uh, forgiveness is the antidote to bitterness. When we've been wounded by someone else, we have a choice. The choice is to become better or bitter. Uh, we can choose to let it go, uh, just freely forgive, and be like Christ, become better. You recall how Jesus, when he was on the cross, they were nailing him to the cross, and he prayed, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's an amazing thing. We can choose that path and become better, or we can choose to hold on to it and become bitter. Uh, David Augsburger has a very good little book on this subject called The Freedom of Forgiveness, 70 times 7, a little reminder how often we're supposed to forgive. Uh, and he talks about different kinds of bitterness. Here's what he says. There's the I've been used and abused brand of bitterness that lets us stew in our own anger juices when we have no chance to vent these hostilities on the people who have hurt us. So we take it out on ourselves, actually. 
or there's the everyone's against me, nobody cares kind of bitterness that grows into a full-blown martyr complex complete with self-pity and all the rest. Or it may be the I'm being neglected, forgotten, and overlooked routine of the housewife who's stuck at home with three little whining kids and her husband's out and doing some glorious job in the big wide world, she thinks. Or it may be the blind, curse it all, I'd rather be dead kind of bitterness that follows disappointment, tragedy, grief, and failure. And sometimes we just pull into ourselves and it's kind of a, a bitter despair. Augsburger says bitterness becomes like a permanent a plaster cast on our emotions. We put it on to protect ourselves from further hurt. And it does that for a while. But it also immobilizes us. It paralyzes us. It makes it hard for us to react normally in an emotional manner. We become cynical, uncaring, critical, caustic. We don't trust people. We become pessimistic. And our faith sort of wilts into doubt. When I was a child, uh, my parents had uh, the perfect antidote for a cough. Uh, when, uh, whenever the cough would persist more than a few days, they would direct me to the nightstand between the beds and say, go get some of that turpentine hydrate with codeine. Any of you remember that stuff? Oh, baby. I, I know now that codeine is habit-forming, but there was no danger that I would ever become addicted to that stuff. It was the worst-tasting, bitterest, foulest, oh, you know, and so in our house, you didn't measure things. It was take a swallow or two of turpentine hydrate and codeine, and you'd choke it down <sighs> and pray the cough would get better soon. When we allow our unforgiveness to grow into bitterness, we put our souls in a permanent state that looks a lot like my face did when I was drinking that medicine. Is that how you want your soul to look? Okay. Amazingly, Astonishingly, we can get used to it. And in that sense, it's something like coffee. When I was in college, it dawned on me one day that all of the adults I knew drank coffee with their meals instead of milk, as I was accustomed to doing. So I thought, well, I'm growing up. I should be an adult, therefore I should drink coffee. So I came home that summer and told my folks, I'm going to drink coffee with my meals. They said, fine. They usually had coffee with their meals. So right out of the percolator, here's a full cup of black coffee. Ooh! How can anybody drink this stuff, I said. <laughs> Unbelievably bitter. And, oh, if you don't like it black, try a little cream and sugar. So I did. Three scoops, large, heaping scoops of sugar, plenty of milk, made it somewhat palatable. And over the years, I began to wean myself away from the milk, and I got down to one still pretty rounded scoop of sugar. Uh, I, I just don't know. You know, it's an amazing thing. But, but my point is this. Uh, as bitter as coffee is, no one who is raised on pop and milk is going to taste black coffee and like it right off. It's an acquired taste. You have to sort of develop a taste for that bitterness. And unfortunately, unfortunately, the bitterness in our souls can become something like that. At first, it will taste very bitter. We'll know something is wrong internally. Something is very wrong spiritually. But then if we keep licking it and sucking on it and nursing it, eventually we'll get used to it and we won't even notice what it's doing to us. Another image, if you will, for this bitterness that takes over our souls when we don't forgive is radiation sickness. Radiation sickness is what happens to our bodies when we've been exposed to ionizing radiation. Um, light comes from uh, radioactive elements like uranium or an X-ray or something like that. Uh, radiation exposure can occur in a single large dose 
uh, like uh, happened to those uh, poor victims at Hiroshima or Chernobyl. Uh, it can come in smaller doses, and actually they use it to treat cancer. But when you've had a certain number of radiation treatments, that's all. It accumulates, you can't have any more. I see some parallels between the effects of radiation on our bodies and the effects of unforgiveness and bitterness in our souls. I have previously described a grudge as a rock in our soul, something we just like to squeeze really hard, and it feels good to squeeze it. It turns out that rock is radioactive. And if we continue to hold it and squeeze it, we will begin to experience the negative effects. One early symptom of radiation sickness is physical weakness. And I think we would see that on the spiritual level as people are cut off from intimacy with God and they're going to be spiritually weaker than when they were walking closely with him. Another symptom is loss of appetite, and I wonder if we don't see that in terms of a, a loss of desire to read the word, a loss of desire to be in fellowship with people, a loss of desire for, for intimacy and prayer with God. Even a mild dose of radiation destroys the blood-forming tissue in our bodies, and uh, this causes a, a loss uh, in the number of blood cells and platelets, and one of the negative effects of that is it reduces our, our effectiveness, our ability to fight off uh, disease and infections. So... There's a parallel there. As we let that bitterness accumulate in our souls, our spiritual immune system goes down and we begin to fall prey to all sorts of other spiritual illnesses. Perhaps the most serious effect of non-lethal doses of radiation is genetic mutation. The children of people who've been exposed to too much radiation have genetic defects very often. And there's a, a powerful lesson here for us as parents and grandparents because if we are raising our children or our grandchildren in an atmosphere where the background radiation, if you will, is sort of uh, this underlying bitterness and unforgiveness towards others, that's going to affect them. It, it's like the atmosphere in which they live. We know that more things are caught than taught, and it's those background things that we don't ever talk about that are the ones that are caught. An attitude like this it can certainly be caught by the children and grandkids in our homes and we damage another generation. Many times the effects of radiation exposure, uh, some of which are cancer, don't show up for years till years later. And unfortunately, we sometimes use that as an excuse or justification for not letting go of that unforgiveness in our hearts. We say, well, it's not affecting me. I'm not turning bitter and sour and cynical like all these things you describe. It, it's not affecting me that way. Good. I'm glad it hasn't yet. But if you keep holding on to that rock, it will. Friends, if this is you, throw the rock away. Please get rid of it. It is dangerous to your soul and it is dangerous to others around you, as we read in Hebrews chapter 12. What happens is we hurt, we've been hurt, so we go to others, friends, to tell them about the hurt that we've endured, and we look for their sympathy. And in the process, we poison their hearts and minds against the person who offended us. And now we've created an us-them kind of attitude that affects the whole body. It is a division in the body of Christ. The infection is spread through gossip. It's spread when we attack the other person's character, when we run them down behind their back, when we demonize them, make them sound like such terrible people. So the author of Hebrews warns us. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. warns us against this. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. 
Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. This kind of spiritual epidemic is directly counter to all that's holy. We may feel very self-righteous about it. Indeed, we may have been seriously, grievously sinned against. I'm not trying to minimize that in any way. But what do we do with it after that? The spreading of gossip and bitterness is unholy in every way. It misses the grace of God. And as he puts it here, see that no one misses the grace of God and no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. If we let unforgiveness fester in our souls, we've certainly failed to pass on the grace of God to the one who hurt us. But worse than that, we've missed out on the grace of God ourselves. Because Jesus says, if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. Friends, we're the folks who owe the million bucks. We have this huge debt to God. We dare not go another day failing to lay hold of the grace that God offers us in Jesus Christ. But we will miss it. We will miss that grace if we hold bitterness in our hearts against someone else. But then the ultimate tragedy of this failure to forgive is that the infection spreads and it defiles many, as he says. The people that, that we infect with this become morally unclean, dirty, polluted in God's sight. The writer anticipates this kind of thing can happen to many people, he says, because our friends are so eager to take our side. That's why they're our friends. That's why we go to them, because we know they'll take our side. We don't tell them the whole story, of course. We tell them our part. And they don't realize that by taking our side, they're not only damaging their relationship with that person that we've just divided them from, they're damaging their relationship with God himself. This is an unholy thing. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. Lewis Smedes wrote, Suppose you never forgive. And some of you may have said that to yourselves. I'm never going to forgive that. Suppose you never forgive. Suppose you feel the hurt each time your memory settles on the person who did you wrong. And suppose you have a compulsion to think of them constantly. You've become a prisoner of your own past pain. You're locked into a torture chamber of your own making. He goes on to say, Therefore, the first and, only the only, and often the only person to be healed by forgiveness is the person who does the forgiving. When we genuinely forgive, we set a prisoner free and then discover the prisoner we set free was us. On the back of your sermon outline, you'll find a forgiveness exercise that may help you to deal with some of these <clears throat> common objections to forgiving. I've mentioned these two in the past in, in previous sermons, but here they are in print, and if those uh, sentiments that you see expressed there kind of resonate in your heart, then I'd urge you to go through that sometime this week uh, look up the Bible verses. Let God speak to you from his word. Here are just a, a couple of other questions that may help us deal with our hurt from past offenses. One is, was Jesus with you at the time of the offense? The Bible is insistent that he was. For example, Jesus himself said, Surely I am with you to the very end of the age. And Hebrews 13.5 says, God will never leave you or forsake you. So if Jesus was with us when that person was doing us wrong, what was Jesus doing there? Why did he let that happen to us? I think there are lots of different ways we could answer that question, but here's one from Scripture. Isaiah 63, 9, In all their distress, speaking of the people of Israel, he too was distressed. 
and Acts 9.4, when Saul was on his way to persecute Christians, he uh, saw a bright light, he fell from his horse, and Jesus Christ spoke to him and said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting the Christians, or why are you persecuting my people? He says, why are you persecuting me? And the point of both of these verses, in the Old Testament and the New, is that when God's people hurt, God hurts. Unlike some of our presidents who claim they feel our pain, he really does. He is the head, and we are the body, and individually members of it. And just as my head knows and feels it when some part of my body is hurting, so the Lord Jesus knows and feels it when we, the members of his body, are hurting. What was Jesus doing when we were being hurt? He was right there with us, being hurt, being offended, being sinned against, being lied to, deceived, slandered, abused, whatever, whatever the offense was. A second set of questions that may help us process the hurt is this. Who did it? What did they do? How'd that make you feel? And for every offense that continues to bother you, you could work through that set of three questions. Who did it? What did they do? How'd it make you feel? As Ted Smith pointed out after the first service, uh, sometimes it's not an individual. Sometimes it's an entire company. The structure of the way things are done at work or the city government or the system or our culture that is in some way inflicted pain on you. And in those cases, it's harder to say, well, there's the person that I'm going to forgive. But nonetheless, we can identify the wrong. What was it specifically that hurt you? Can you say what the fault was? Can you, can you give it a name? Can you describe it in detail? That's important to do, to say, this is the offense. This is how I was wronged. And then, how did that make you feel? The question is not, how did they intend to make you feel, but how did you feel when they were doing or saying that to you? In my case, I was made to feel like a little child who didn't know anything. I felt stupid, small, belittled, demeaned, threatened, like I wasn't any good and I wasn't important. All of my flaws were exaggerated and held up on display, and all of my strengths were dismissed as irrelevant. How was it for you? Be able to say that. These are the things that create the moral obligation that person owes you. And we need to be able to say them, identify them, and then be willing to pay that price ourselves. We pay the price in order to forgive. We say, okay, I accept the fact that I have been, that I have been hurt in this way, and I do not seek any redress from them. I pay it. They don't owe me a thing. That's what we do. Now, you may look at that and say, oh, boy, I don't know if I can do that. That's, that's an awfully steep price. And it is a steep price because some sins are very grievous. Nonetheless, this is what we must do. It's for our own good. Letting go of a rattlesnake may be good for the snake, but it's good for you as well. There's a story about a little boy who went to visit his grandparents on the farm. <clears throat> his granddad, when he got there, gave him a slingshot. said, here's a target. Why don't you go out in the woods and practice? So he did. He went out and he practiced all day. Couldn't hit the thing for anything. Just tried and tried. Just couldn't seem to get the hang of it. So he gave up, kind of discouraged, and he was on his way back into the house and uh, saw his grandmother's pet duck swimming in the pond there by the barn. Just on a whim, knowing he couldn't possibly hit it, he took his slingshot, fired away, and would you believe, hit the duck right in the head and killed it. Now what? Well, he, he is distraught, and he knows he's done a horrible thing. So he hides the duck in the woodpile, and as he looks up, he sees his sister watching. 
She doesn't say a thing. She just smiles. <clears throat> so after lunch that day, Grandma said, Sally, let's wash the dishes. And Sally said, uh, Grandma, I think uh, Johnny said he wanted to help with the dishes today. And she leans over to Johnny and says, remember the duck. Johnny, of course, washes the dishes. <clears throat> a little later that day, Grandpa asked if the kids wanted to go fishing. Oh, yeah, yeah, we'd love to. Grandma says, well, I'm sorry, Sally, but I need you to, to stay and help me get dinner ready. Well, Grandma, I think Johnny told me he wants to help getting dinner ready today. Remember the duck. And Johnny helped get dinner ready today. So after several days of Johnny doing his chores and Sally's, he could stand it no longer. He finally went to his grandmother and confessed. And she said, I know, honey. I was standing at the window. I saw the whole thing. And I've been ready to forgive you, waiting for you to come. I was just wondering how long you were going to let Sally make a slave of you. Friends, when we fail to forgive those who have hurt us, we let them and Satan make slaves of us. Letting go of the rattlesnake may be good for the snake, but it's much better for us.